can take your Bibles with me. Turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Maybe you are like me, and when you are with family, and maybe it's a Friday evening, and you are looking at one another, and you have the question, where should we go for dinner tonight? And you realize that you have pretty much any restaurant available to you at your disposal. What can you not think of? Any restaurant that sounds good in that moment. Or maybe you're sitting down for family movie night. And with modern technology, we have at our fingertips any movie imaginable from any era of cinema photography. And again, the same thing comes to mind. I can't think of something that sounds fun to watch as a family. I'll give you a little behind-the-scenes view of uh, preparing a sermon. Uh, When Russ says to me, hey, Ben, you have two weeks. You preach whatever you want. It's kind of the same impact. Uh, sure, I've got the whole Bible at my disposal, and you can't think of anything to preach of. So um, I sort of cheated over the last few weeks. The Psalms are sort of easy. They're sort of all presented as one unit. And then the parables are also a pretty easy thing to go to because they're, again, presented as one unit. So we're going to look at the parable today, one that is challenging for me. I was reading through it in my own personal read-through of Scripture, and this is one that at the end, I didn't really get the warm fuzzies when I closed my Bible. I sort of walked away and thought, what was that about? So maybe you you all are smarter than me, so I understand that no one here has ever had that issue. But the parable of the dishonest manager was one that I thought, if I get an opportunity to preach a sermon, I'm going to try to unpack this one and really explain it to myself. So you're going to get um, sort of the outworkings of my own confusion this morning. Uh, So maybe you're with me in Luke chapter 16. We're going to work through this together, verse by verse, make some comments, because there is a very practical message for us in this parable, though it does get a little confusing towards the end. So let's read the first two verses, and then we will continue on from there. In verse 1, Jesus is speaking here, Luke recording it, and we read, He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. We'll pause there for a second. Jesus' audience here is not the Pharisees, though you'll find later if you keep reading, we're not going to look at it today, that they are overhearing Jesus' teaching. And they're not very impressed, as they are rarely impressed in what Jesus has to say. Uh, It's not even the great booming volatile crowd either. Jesus is sharing this parable with his personal disciples. And uh, he has a very personal message for them as he continues. Uh, But he does begin by setting the scene like the master storyteller that he is of a rich man and his financial manager. Now maybe you, if you work a business, maybe you've had relationships in business that have gone sour over the years. Be it personality differences or maybe be it something that was uh, slightly incredulous that maybe a business manager did with you. Well, this was not a good partner relationship. And we'll find in these verses um, is that because this manager, or as the ESV translates it, steward, and I'll use that word for the remainder of the sermon, the steward wasn't just deceptive or unkind or hard to work with. We actually read that he was, in verse 2, wasting his owner's possessions. Now, the word wasting there is the same word that we read in the previous chapter of Luke 15 with the prodigal son. And this is where it 
words used in that context. Luke 15, 13, the younger son gathered all that he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So that's the idea that we need to get here. This steward is taking his master's money and using it Apparently, however he wants. And uh, we find out in a few verses here that the job of being this steward, it's probably one that most of us would have liked. It's not very physically straining. Uh, There's prestige that comes with this position. And he had a pretty cush job, if I could use that word, uh, for us this morning. But with that responsibility came access to money that was not his own, and it made it easy for him to be careless and to misappropriate these funds, which he's going to do. Now, financial corruption, we can turn anywhere in our world and find examples of financial corruption, and we have to ask ourselves, why is this such a temptation for men and women when it comes to money to be dishonest with it? Well, it's simply because greed and selfishness and discontentedness um, is a pitfall for all of us. And there's examples, even the small ones, of clocking in a little late, staying clocked in a little long, maybe even using the office resources that are not your own for personal use. Um, We're not sure the specifics behind what this steward was doing, but uh, we can be assured that it was more than stealing a few paper clips from the office and taking them home with him. And again, we're not even sure how he was caught. But in these situations, uh, typically the truth does prevail. And um, we read the response of the owner, the, the uh, rich man in verse 2. And he came to him, called to him and said, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. What's he telling him to do? He's going to dismiss him from his service, and he wants the final books. He wants the official ledger to know every penny that came in, every penny that went out. And uh, we're led to believe that if these accusations were read and if the records were turned in, uh, it's not wrong. And the steward is going to be found guilty because we do not see him uh, arguing his case that he was accused wrongly. No, he knows what he's done is wrong. Uh, last couple weeks here, uh, actually over this past weekend, Debbie and I closed out our first quarter of teaching and uh, in education. Many of you have been in education. Even in college, I had friends who they would squander the first quarter, uh, the first semester even. And when that final exam comes around, then they finally crunch the numbers, right? And they say, what do I get in this class if I get a zero on the final exam? And technology is such that you type zero, enter, and it gives you your final grade. And that's not normally good. So then they go, well, what is it if I get 100 on this final exam? Enter. And hopefully that is a passing grade. Well, there were some where it was, Ben, I have to get a 98 on this final exam to even pass the Like, the amount of times I had this conversation is actually sickening. Um, it's like, not like to get like a B, to get like a D minus. And it's like, well, what have you gotten so far on all the tests? I haven't gotten anything over a 62. It's like... Oh, boy. Well, what's the process then? It's to go to the teacher and say, is there anything that I can do to raise my grade? And teachers typically go, yes, about four weeks ago, you could have taken me up on this extra credit opportunity or all of these study opportunities that I gave. And typically, a teacher's going to say, I'm sorry. I hope you get a 98. I'll see you on Friday at the exam. Well... Trying to avoid consequences is something that is natural for us. And that's where our steward's at. He's filled with fear. He's filled with the realization that his corrupt actions are now going to bring the consequences to him. And his brain begins to race. Look with me in verse 3. 
And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Well, the issue comes, let's pause here, for this disgraced manager, this disgraced steward, and the fact that he apparently had no other marketable skills that he recognized in his life. He had no physical strength to work a blue-collar job, and at least, if nothing else, he had pride in himself that he was not going to depend on handouts the rest of his life. So he has pretty much decided uh, one of two things are going to happen. I'm going to die of starvation, or I'm going to put a plan into action. And we don't really know what his plan is yet, but we do know the end result. He says that hopefully it's going to cause people to welcome me into their houses. Now that's a pretty lofty goal for us at face value. He's gone from being a disgraced manager who once word begins to spread about this guy, I don't know who's going to really want to hire him as their money guy. Um, who's penniless, jobless, and uh, he's going to be friendless here in a little bit. But we'll continue on here. And Jesus is going to use this weird story to prove a spiritual point. Because our main character is not somebody that we really want to emulate here on face value. He's selfish. He's motivated by self-preservation. And even when he does get caught here, we don't really see a brokenness, a contriteness of I messed up. No, no, he still just wants to save his own neck. So let's look in verse 5. The plan begins to come into focus. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, well, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. Well, he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. We'll pause here again. So what is he going to do? He reaches out to the debtors of his master, and he begins to do some under-the-table bargains. Now, even here, we sort of realize that he's not been doing his job because you would assume that the guy in charge of someone's money would know how much people owe him and even what they owe him. But here he sort of has to ask, so how much did you owe my master again? And they say the different amounts. And we'll talk about that in a second, uh, kind of what those mean for us. Uh, but he sits the first one down. He says, so how much do you owe? And he says, a hundred measures of oil. That's an interesting thing here because we don't get a financial amount, which we would typically think a dollar amount for us. He doesn't say, I owe him 50 bucks. He says, I owe him 100 measures of oil. Now, if you're looking at a different version, the NIV goes on and actually converts this to a modern equivalent force. They say uh, that he owes him 800 gallons of oil. It's tough to kind of know what the the uh, transition rate is there. The measure is what they used. And so, but 800 to 900 gallons seems to be a fair estimation. So upon hearing this, that's that's a lot of gallons of oil. In case we're just wondering here. That is like I don't know where I'd go get 100 gallons of oil. Uh, so but upon hearing this, what's he do? He tells him to sit down and pull out his checkbook or I guess his scroll book if we're in this era and uh, write out a check for 500 measures of oil, or 400 gallons. So, 
putting it into a modern example, you have a monthly mortgage payment and your financial creditor comes to you and says, friend, I know you owe $400,000 left on this house, which for us today is going to be about a 200 square foot home in our market. But because it's a Tuesday and he looks out the window and says, and it's 65 degrees, I'm going to give you a deal. I'm going to slash that price to $200,000. Now, once we confirm that there's no catches, that there's no second foot dropping, we could not grab a pen fast enough to sign the dotted line. And that's exactly what happens here. He gives him a 50% discount. But he's not done yet. He meets with another one who owes him 100 measures of wheat. And commentators estimate that that's the amount of wheat that's going to be in about a 100-acre field. So, again, a lot of wheat here for us. And what's he do here? He says, sit down and write a bill for 80 measures, a 20% discount. And, yes, this second debtor jumps at the opportunity to save money for himself. So, and some interesting things here. He was not fired immediately. That's what I would have thought the owner would have done here. He sees what's happening. He says something like, get out. You're done. You're not affecting my money anymore. Apparently, in this parable, the steward was given enough leash to where he had still the authority to go on and make these backroom deals. And essentially, what he did was tear up the original contract, throw it away, write a new one real quick, and have him sign it. This is going to be a legally binding document. And yes, of course, this is going to be extremely unethical. The owner is losing a lot of wealth here. And uh, <laughs> a question that we would ask ourselves here is, um, what is his reaction going to be? I don't know that he's going to be extremely pumped that this man who's already wasted a lot of money is now wasting more wealth for him. Um, But we do learn a little bit about our steward here. Apparently, he was good at reading people. For instance, with the first debtor, he knew that he was going to have to cut him a bigger deal, 50% in order to get him to sign off on this, to help him out. The second man, though, he realized he didn't need to push him as far. All he had to do was offer a 20% discount, and he was going to get his desired Outcome. So it showed the shrewdness and the negotiating skills of this steward. So yes, what's the owner going to do when he realizes it? Is he going to call the local guards, have them arrested? Or is he going to go even further and pull out a sword and kill this steward himself? Let's look in verse 8. We read that the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And here's where it starts to get confusing for us, because some, some of those phrases, we look at it and we go, hmm, interesting. Well, we'll break them down line by line. But let's begin, let's finish our story in verse 8. We, we don't read that he was pleased with the outcome, But the narration reveals that he commended him for his shrewdness. Our word there means his prudence or his wisdom in this situation. My mind goes back to maybe an old black and white movie where the crime boss is finally arrested by the young upstart detective. And while they're cuffing him and putting him in the back of the police car, he he stops and he reaches out his hand and he shakes the hand of the young detective almost with a smile on his face. I think that's kind of the idea here. The owner is impressed at the steward's resourcefulness and his determination in this greatest moment of need to get what he wants. 
Now let's unpack briefly before we move on some perspectives about these contracts. A little delve into Jewish history helps us to appreciate a little bit more what's happening here. The law of Moses in the book of Leviticus and even back into Exodus a little bit is going to forbid rich owners from tacking on interest on top of these already hefty fees that were going to be required. And the thought process there is that they didn't need to be motivated by selfishness, by greed. Imagine if that was still the law of our world today. The heart behind the law, again, was to be content in what you were due and to not destroy the wealth and the lives of those who were already struggling to pay back this debt. So some people try to explain this parable by saying, maybe the original bill was only 400 gallons of oil or 80 acres of land. And maybe the business manager, the steward, knew that the owner had gone and illegally and unethically tacked on that percentage of interest. And when he slashes that price, the only way for him to be caught is really for the owner to self-incriminate himself about by saying, it's like Jimmy who says, Tommy had his eyes open during prayer, that kind of an idea. Well, how did you know, Jimmy? Uh, you know, so maybe that's how we should understand this story. Others wonder if the steward himself added the 50% and the 20% interest. And so when he calls in the debtors to cut him a deal, he's really not cutting him a deal. He's just removing his own interest from it. And maybe that's why our bills were written in commodities and not money amounts. So they really wouldn't have been able to piece it together. Uh, But finally, others do think, and I probably would go with it, the fact that the steward did just give a considerable discount at the expense of his owner in order to make friends in his hour of need. Either way, he was commended for his shrewdness by this, this owner. And uh, we, we wonder even if maybe a man like this would be hired back after the story with a little bit more oversight. The thought process being, you're too skilled, you're too talented, you're too shrewd to let go and let somebody else have you. Well, regardless, we're left with this interesting moral in 8b, the second half of verse 8. Let me read 8b and 9 again, and that's where we're going to get sort of Jesus' take on his point. He says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwelling. Jesus adds the commentary for us that the children of this world, children of darkness, we can say non-believers, are apparently more shrewd, they're more prudent in how they associate with men and women of this world than believers, children of light, children of heaven. Now, what would cause Jesus to say that when he assesses people's interactions? Well, a commentator tried to add his helpful comments to it, and he said this, The sons of light are servants of God. Well-intentioned as they are, they often lack the wisdom to use what they have as wisely as the worldly use their possessions for their very different ends. Jesus admitted that on average, unsaved men and women are more financially savvy in accomplishing what they want in life than, and using the resources to leverage those opportunities. Now, as I was studying here, I sort of had an argument with Jesus a little bit, by, which, is, which, is, <laughs> which is dangerous, uh, because you would look at Jesus and say, well, sure, 
master, but uh, the unsaved are also willing to lie, cheat, and steal to get what they want. And we're supposed to be above such things. Uh, So, yes, it does seem that they can get out ahead because they're not playing by the rules that we are trying to pay for. Unfortunately, this shrewdness uh, is rarely used to accomplish the things of God. And we can see that this is what crime is. It's seeing an opportunity and simply seizing it, regardless of how you do it. That's what the dishonest manager did. He saw the opportunity to ingratiate himself at his master's expense, and he worked out a plan. So I don't know that that's what Jesus is necessarily getting at, just the end result. There must be more that he's trying to communicate here, which leads us to verse 9, and hopefully we'll be able to come to a conclusion of why Jesus would use this story and then make this application, and how can this apply to us? In verse 9 he says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwelling. Now here, at first read, if we closed our Bibles real quick, and I said, summarize what Jesus just said, it does seem like he's saying we need to use unrighteous means to make people like us so they'll accept us and we can move forward together. However, that would not be in unison with the rest of the Bible. So I don't believe that that's what Jesus is saying. And I don't even believe that he's promoting this, this criminal as a virtuous moral example for us to follow. So what's he doing? Well, he's pointing at the criminals with the knowledge that they look around them at all times trying to find an opportunity. Criminals here, the dishonest manager, he is he is ever trying to be as diligent and shrewd to accomplish a goal. And when they do find one which will yield a desirable income, the plan is put into action. Jesus' point, I believe, in verse 9, comes down to the lesson that the children of light, us as believers, are to be using our wealth, our opportunity, our resources, just as efficiently, not for our own agenda, though, What's our agenda? It would be trying to expand the kingdom of heaven, to see the things of Christ promoted in this world. It is in that sense that shrewdness, prudence, wisdom, becomes a Christian example for us. Jesus was quick to target an area here where he knew his disciples would be very tempted, right, financially, to be under the table to be dishonest. And this is an example he uses, even still to prove a spiritual point. And it's true. Our money is important to us. Why? Well, because we need it to survive. It provides things like, you know, enjoyment, provision, security, advancement in life, and so many other things. But Jesus is calling his followers to not be and to not view finances as merely the end result, like our manager did at the beginning of the story. No, no. They're to be used for the advancement of God's kingdom. I had a fascinating book that I was able to read to help me with this parable by Al Mohler, who's a president of Christian Seminary. And he wrote a chapter on this. And this is what he said, sort of his summary. Uh, Moeller said this, as children of light, we must be ready to put our wealth, our stewardship, our financial planning, and our investments in the service of the kingdom of heaven, and to understand how strategic investment in the kingdom opportunities can be wisely identified and accomplished. 
You see, Jesus summarized his overall message by challenging his followers. Remember, this is the disciples he's talking to. He challenged them about who their true master is, God, or in our context, money. And this is where we are tempted to look at the Bible and really blame it for meddling, right? Okay, easy here, Jesus, with this story. Um, But as we've been watching on Wednesday nights, and I encourage you to come out to those, it's been a fascinating video series and discussion afterwards about what it means for Jesus to be our master. And uh, as a result of that discussion, we've really talked through many different ways how we have to open up our lives completely to Jesus and to his leading uh, so that the master can guide us and direct us. We simply cannot partition off parts of our lives and say that they're off limits to Jesus. Kind of even feels weird saying something like that out loud. Uh, But we become good at bargaining, just like the steward was in those moments. Now, it could sound something like this. So, Jesus, I hear your offer of eternal life. I do. I hear it. And I see that you are requiring of me total devotion and dedication However, and then we would like to counter-offer, right? How about 99% total dedication, total commitment, and I'll offer you this in addition to that. And we can fill in the blank there with something that we would be more than happy to give Jesus. Now, of course, I speak as a fool, and I freely admit that. However, our sinful pride can subconsciously jump into that immediately. Okay, we see that, oh, I'm required this as well from Jesus. And we can say, well, I'll, I'll give you 45 of these, just don't. So how does Jesus land the plane? Well, in verses 10 through 13, he sort of gives a summary of this parable. And he's going to drive home his point one more time. He says this in verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who's dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you who have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus used an interesting argumentation here from lesser to greater as he's talking to his disciples. He challenged them that if they have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth... Or we could put there earthly money, earthly gains, wealth that's been corrupted by the, by the fall, yes, by sin. It's not that money is in and of itself evil, but we understand that we live in a sin-cursed world. And that's Jesus' description, unrighteous wealth. If we have not been faithful in using that the way that we should, how on earth could we or they be trusted with these eternal riches, as Jesus described In verse 12 then, he says, If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Now, I would have thought Jesus would have swapped that by saying, If you've not been responsible in your own money, we're not going to entrust you with someone else's money. But listen to what Jesus is meaning. And let's think about it from his perspective. From a spiritual reality, everything we have in life is God's. Correct. We've been given to it as stewards of those things. The money we have, the cars we drive, the job we work, the family that we love, and everything else has been entrusted to us for a specific time and for a specific purpose. Again, one commentator said this, We cannot take these things with us when we die. If we handle them badly here on earth, 
Well, we show that we're unfitted to use the true heavenly riches, which will otherwise be given us as a permanent possession in glory. What Jesus is saying here is, if you haven't used the thing that I've given you temporarily here on earth, another's wealth, well, I don't believe that I would trust you with eternal riches forever, which will be yours perpetually. And then he does conclude it again. No servant can serve two masters in verse 13. For either he will hate the one, love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And what's his summary there? You cannot serve God in money. Jesus ties his entire message together here by using the same word steward. Again, in verse 13, our Bible translated, no servant can serve two masters. But here Jesus says, no steward can serve two masters. And they would have thought, oh, so we're like the steward in the parable. Yes, for either he will hate the one and love the other or be devoted and despise the other. This kind of service, like the steward was supposed to have, total dedication to his master's wealth. It is a self-contradiction to think that we could be motivated in two different directions with that same level of complete commitment. Now, Jesus used this reality here of finances. We could extend this into the business world, yes, the political world, the social world, and certainly our spiritual world as well. We need to realize and recognize that heaven has one throne. And so too do our hearts, one throne with one king seated upon them. And we cannot be neutral to this reality. See, Jesus is going to go on to say, the one who tries to walk the fence, play both sides, will end up despising, or the literal world there is dealing treacherously with one, just like the, the sinful steward did at the beginning. The other master will be left and eventually despised. And the moral of the story is like the closing sentence of a fable. You cannot serve God and money. Now think of these disciples. They've heard this story. They're thinking through these implications for themselves. And how easy would it have been for them to leverage even Jesus' fame? Thousands of people crowded to Jesus. He could have had anything he wanted. And they could have leveraged that for their own financial gain, for their own social advancement. It would have been easy to mismanage funds, to think that no one would have found out. We recognize that that temptation was too much for Judas Iscariot, who did give in to those temptations. And what did those actions reveal? Exactly who who his God was, who the master was in his life. And these disciples would be dealing with unique temptations in the first century, just like we are dealing with unique temptations in the 21st century. But if we break it down, the same vices are still here. The same sins that are so easily besetting us. What did Solomon warn us? That there's nothing new under the sun. And we can rest assured that we need to be just on guard as the disciples did. Yes, this parable is about wealth. As you see on the screen behind me, I found a bag of money and gold coins. However, I could have easily, and the implication and application could be also about social status, career advancement, relationships, time management, and any other number of pitfalls for a believer. Why? Why is this such a practical parable for us? Well, it's because our hearts, our sin nature, work relentlessly to corrupt things to deal treacherously with what should be used for the things of God and the expanse of his kingdom. So our lives need to be characterized by that level of prudence, that level of intentionality, not to save our own skin like the 
evil steward, but no, to serve Jesus Christ and to leverage those things for the sake of his great name. So what do we do with this? What's our application? Really two questions for us today. First of all, are our lives worthy of commendation by our master? Now, I do not mean are we living lives that Jesus would look at and say that, oh, he or she is worthy of salvation. Of course not. I'm not going there with this at all. But the dishonest steward was commended for his shrewdness in using everything at his disposal for his accomplished end. Would Jesus Christ look at our lives, place his stamp of approval on our efforts, on our motivations, or would the accounting not add up like it did at the beginning? See, Jesus connected prudence with shrewdness and faithfulness at the end of the parable. And Paul makes this connection as well. I wonder if Paul used influence from it. He wrote this in 1 Corinthians 4. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Are our lives worthy of commendation by our master? And then secondly, who is on the throne of our hearts even today? Yes, this does have salvation implications. You will serve someone in life. You will serve Jesus Christ as king, or you will serve yourself. And the Bible tells us where serving ourselves leads us. We cannot serve two masters. Every moment of the day, we are serving someone through our attitudes, our actions, our efforts. And this may seem overwhelming when we look at our lives. It may seem like this is relentless. Certainly there must be a break at some point for us. No, there isn't. We are engaged in a battle for our very souls. And we can be content that our enemy, our own sinful flesh, Satan himself, is not resting. But do not be defeated because, as we read in Scripture, what? Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. These two questions, I think, motivate us uh, to continue to live lives, to take inventory of what we're doing, who our master is every moment of the day. And yes, Lord willing, to find motivation in working to leverage every opportunity for the sake of the gospel. So our call today is to this week work tirelessly to accomplish the goal, meted out by our master, which is what? To see his kingdom expanded through our wealth, yes, through our relationships, of course. And this takes discipline. Charles Spurgeon wrote this quote when he thought of his own life. Uh, He said this, I now have concentrated all my prayers into one. So our ears perk up here. And the one prayer is this, that I may die to self and live wholly to him. So we're going to transition now to a time of response. We're going to sing a few hymns uh, where we're going to be reminded that we serve a great God who is truly worthy of our dedication. We're going to be reminded also that we need his guidance and his leading as we navigate the troubled waters, right? Because there is the rise and fall. Our sin is ever around us. Trials are abundant. But through it all, finally, we're going to be comforted by the fact that he is sufficient for everything that we need in life. So let's praise him together. Let's live on mission as we live in a spiritually shrewd and practically wise way for the honor of Christ and the expanse of his kingdom. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you that you are a good and gracious king 
who gives us an example to follow, that we are to leverage these opportunities for the sake of your great name. Thank you for our church family. Thank you for your spirit who promises to give us the strength necessary to accomplish the task at hand. So, Lord, we're excited to continue to reflect now through song and through our own uh, time of prayer. And, Lord, I do pray that your blessing would be on our church family as we go forward from here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.